0: Hello, and welcome to the Rachman
1: Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. This week, we're looking at US-Russian relations, after the first face-to-face meeting between the two countries' presidents, Joe Biden and Vladimir Putin. My guest is Fiona Hill, who served as Director for Russian Affairs in the Trump White House, before that as an academic and as a Senior Intelligence Analyst for the Obama and Bush administrations. Dr. Hyung became internationally famous when she testified before Congress in the first impeachment of Donald Trump in 2019. Back in the private sector, as an analyst at the Brookings Institution in Washington, Fiona Hill continues to consider the question that's defined her career, and that's the subject of today's podcast How should the United States handle its relationship with Russia? When she testified before Congress, Fiona Hill gave a truly memorable performance. She gave alarming insights into the workings of the Trump White House. She provided blunt assessments of Russian goals and methods. And she explained her unusual personal story that had seen her move from a childhood in Northern England to the heart of the American establishment in Washington, D.C.
2: I grew up poor with a very distinctive working class accent. In England, in the 1980s and 1990s, this would have impeded my professional advancement. This background has never set me back in America.
1: At a time when President Trump, for whom she'd worked, was attempting to discredit the idea that Russia had interfered in the 2016 US presidential election, Hill was very clear in explaining to Congress what had actually happened.
2: The unfortunate truth is that Russia was the foreign power that systematically attacked our democratic institutions in 2016. It is beyond dispute, even if some of the underlying details must remain classified.
1: Hill's view was that Russia's goal was to discredit the entire American democratic system.
2: The Russians' interests, are, frankly, to delegitimize our entire presidency. The goal of the Russians was really to put whoever became the president by trying to tip their hands on one side of the scale under a cloud.
1: Fiona Hill participated in the Trump-Putin meeting in Helsinki as a White House official, and she later made it clear that she'd been aghast at Trump's indulgence of the Russian version of recent history. People came to me, Dan Coates came to me, and some others, they said they think it's Russia. Uh, I have uh, President Putin. Uh, he just said it's not Russia. I will say this, I don't see any reason why it would be. Given what happened in Helsinki, I knew Fiona Hill would be casting an interested and expert eye on the first Biden-Putin summit. When I got her on the line from Washington DC, I asked Dr Hill what she thought the summit had achieved.
2: This was a very normal summit, which in of itself was an achievement, given things that had preceded it, not just with the previous administration and Trump's meeting with Putin at Helsinki in the whole press conference there. But also given the level of confrontation, because what we're really trying to do is to take that down a notch and try to find some rules of the road. Now, the big question is did it achieve that? There was again this sort of sense of normalcy. It seemed very professional. There wasn't a lot of preparation for deliverables because there couldn't possibly be any because this was, again, uh, sort of an assessment by each side of the other and you know what the market would bear, what the kind of load-bearing weight of uh, these kinds of meetings would be. But the setting in Geneva, kind of classic old sort of U.S.-Soviet meeting venue, uh, Gorbachev and Reagan being the last ones who'd met there, you know, could have picked Reykjavik, probably Helsinki people wanted to stay away from bad karma from the last one, Vienna, you know, any of these neutral spots that were in the old Cold War frame would seem to be somewhat useful for this meeting because frankly, we have not got ourselves out of that pattern of confrontation for the whole extent of the relationship, even post-Cold War, apart from a brief moment in the 90s with Clinton and Yeltsin. That was fraught in its own way. And then at the very beginning with Putin, when you know, George W. Bush tried to form some kind of personal relationship with him, but you know, we saw that that really didn't get anywhere. So we've been in this kind of pattern, I would say, since 2007, 2008, for sure. You know, with the Munich speech with Putin and then everything that happened subsequently, invasion of Georgia and on and on.
1: So Biden, before the meeting, referred to Russia as a great power. And I think he even took a bit of flack in the United States for that. Presumably those words were quite carefully chosen as a way of sort of giving face to to the Russians. And they must have felt that that was something worth doing.
2: Yeah. I mean, look, people are saying this was a gift summit, that it was a win for Putin, a symbolic win. Biden used those words, great power, called him a worthy opponent. But that's all just signalling in a way of saying, OK, yeah, we are ready to deal with you professionally. And Russia has been obsessed with being a great power for its whole existence, really. I mean, going back to Peter the Great and its interactions with the the Europeans, and one might say even further before, you know, for those who are history buffs, might recall that there was an exchange of letters between Elizabeth I and Ivan the Terrible. And at one point, he even proposed marriage to her, you know, which would have been one way of becoming a great power, I guess. Uh, Just like fascinating little bit of history facts there. So, you know, for Russia, getting that kind of recognition is obviously something that is important. And we all may recall after President Obama, when Biden was the vice president, kind of dissed Putin, and in fact, really did diss Putin. There was a the comment about him looking like a slouchy kid sitting at the back of a classroom, the way that Putin tends to sit and flop in the chair with his, you know, legs spread, you know, kind of the sort of mansplaining stance when he sort of sits back and looks at everybody. I mean, you know, we all notice it, but you know, perhaps it might have been wise of Obama not to point it out. And then the other thing was that President Obama called Russia a regional power after the annexation of Crimea and the sparking off of war and the Donbass. And the Russians bristled about that. And what we saw was them acting out to prove that they weren't a regional power. So, you know, against the backdrop of this meeting in Geneva, you know, we saw Russian long-range bombers set off from the Russian Far East and make their way all the way to Hawaii. It was almost like saying, remember, you know, kind of, you're talking about this as regional power, our region extends A long way. It's not just in Europe, so I think what Biden was trying to do was to head off some of this posturing and basically say, "Okay, you know, we get it. You know, you want to save face, you want to have this status recognised, but that means we have to have business done." And previous presidents have tried to do the same. And look, what Trump was trying to do, he was trying to bypass all of those presences about Russia because if you look at it. How he approached the relationship was all about him and Putin. And he thought that personal charisma, making Putin, as he was always saying, like with everyone else, fall in love with him, that that would be sufficient to sway the relationship. Well, I mean, that episode taught us no, absolutely not. So Biden is kind of attempting to level set it again. So what happens next is really the important thing.
1: Mm. And I guess there is always the school of thought, which, you know, you must have engaged with and thought about, which says, yeah, but it's pointless, because in fact, there is no basis for trust with Russia. These guys will always manoeuvre for advantage. You can't work with them cooperatively. Any effort to do that will be taken as a sign of weakness. What's your response to that line of argument?
2: Well, it depends. And I think that, you know, during the Cold War, when obviously we were in a face-off. We did manage to work with them on a few things, most notably on infectious disease, frankly, and dealing with a whole host of problems behind the scenes that were kind of existential to both of us. We worked with them on HIV, I mean, after a lot of posturing, highly infectious tuberculosis, the ones that are multi-drug resistant, smallpox, polio, those aren't inconsequential. And there was you know, quite a bit of scientific exchange We could have done better this time around with the pandemic. That's certainly for sure. But even, you know, during the kind of Russian period, we've had obviously the space cooperation. That seems to have fallen on hard times as well with the Russians, you know, touting doing things with the Chinese. I mean, there are prospects for working with them in the right kind of environment. But the point is true, that you have to be extraordinarily careful at all times. And you know trust is not really on the agenda. Verification is at all times. And I don't think from anything that I heard from President Biden that he was ignoring that. And again, previous presidents have learned that also to their cost. So the whole point is not to pander. Russia, but to set very clear red lines and send very clear messages. But you also have to have degrees of collective action. So things work when you've got your act together domestically. So if President Biden has a good team around him and he's able to work with Congress and to make a situation where the partisan politics and the political infighting stops at the border, you know, as it used to during the Cold War period. And then also if he's on the same page as his allies. And what was also important and got lost in the mix of all the hyperventilation about the summit and the meeting with Putin was his meetings with the G7, the European Union, NATO, and then other key allies on the margins of all of these other events. So what he was trying to project there, and that's a also see if this holds, was a sense of unity with all of the allies. And of course, they spent a lot of time talking about China, but also about Russia. And I think if we can get our act together collectively at home in the United States, but then collectively with allies like the United Kingdom, France, Germany, European Union, and NATO, then we do have something of a chance of changing the trajectory somewhat of this relationship with Russia. But it requires focus, and knowing that at all times you've got to push back and set red lines, that you can enforce. It's no good just talking about them, but you have to enforce them. And there are some instances where we have done that. We can talk about those as well.
1: Mm. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that Biden focused on that did seem new, at least in the amount of focus it got in the public discussion, was publicly warning Putin not to mess with America's key infrastructure through cyber attacks. How big a problem is that, either now or potentially in the future?
2: Well, it's an enormous problem because the Russians have shown that they really want to do that. And they also want us to know that they are doing it. You might recall under President Trump, he kept trying to deflect and, you know, give Russia an out and say, no, this probably wasn't Russia. It could have been, you know, remember, first of all, the kind of overweight man sitting on his bed, you know, somewhere in New Jersey. That was kind of a strange image. Then the other times it was the Chinese or the North Koreans and the Russians were jumping up and down saying, No, no, it's us, it's actually us, because they want to be recognized as being a major cyber power. They also want to be recognized for the mischief that they can cause. And I think they're perfectly happy with having all these ransomware attacks attributed to people operating in Russia and Russian criminals because it's very handy for them. Putin's always saying, well, the Russian state's not doing this. And we always point out, well, yes, but you're also not reining in your criminals. And I think that basically Biden gave a very clear message to the Russians about that. The problem is it probably wasn't extensive enough because he talked about 16 issue areas. I kind of quipped, I'd give them 1,600. You've got to be as precise as possible with the Russians. And the lesson in cyberspace is the same lesson that we've had in our interactions in the military sphere. We've had a long standing channel with our chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It used to be General Dunford, now it's General Milley, with Gerasimov, who's been a constant throughout all of this on the Russian side. And we've always been very clear about the rules of engagement there you fire on us, we'll fire back. And we'll show you that we will. And of course, that happened in Syria in 2018 when the Wagner Group, a paramilitary militia essentially run by Mr. Prigozhin, Putin's former catering chief from the Kremlin, did an operation where they were pretending to be rebels in Syria and fired on US special forces and the US fired back with the full firepower. And there was extraordinary high casualties among the Wagner group. This was not the regular military who had been warned. And, you know, clearly Russian operatives were trying to trust how much this red line held and the rules of engagement. And we never fired on each other during the Cold War. Plenty of proxy conflicts, but not directly. And this was the only time that there's been massive Russian casualties. It was avoided during the wars in the former Yugoslavia, when the Russians headed to Pristina airport during all the standoff over Kosovo. And then there we had a firefight with Russians in Syria.
1: And how did the Russians respond to it? I mean, given that there were such, as you say, high casualties, did they just use the deniability of the Wagner Group just to back off?
2: They actually didn't quite so much. No, it was basically you got us. There was a lot of you know chagrin and you know obviously regret on their part and embarrassment and you name it. And the Russian military were pretty discomforted because they seemed not to be in the loop on this operation. Because again, you know, the Russians have the official apparatus, you know, be military, foreign affairs, you know, cyber. And then they have the unofficial, which is the guys for hire. And the guys for hire got themselves into massive trouble. So, this is one area where covert, subversive action did not work to their advantage. And we have to get that same rules of the road with cyber. And of course, that's something that NATO is talking about as well. What rises to the level of a unified NATO response? And that's what Russia is trying to test with cyber. They're trying to say, how far can they go without getting basically whacked? And so that's where we're going to have to be clear as well.
1: And Biden did more than hint at the prospect of cyber retaliation.
2: Yes, in these 16 areas. And so that's why I'm saying we've got to kind of expand out as far as we can all of those guardrails and red lines. Because we can push them off pretty high level critical infrastructure and, you know, getting into our government systems like the SolarWinds hack. But they also get a lot of mileage out of all of this other forms of cyber hacking Enter everybody's email systems, you know, like what they did with the DNC during the 2016 election, you know, recording people surreptitiously and putting on YouTube like they did with Tori Newland during the Ukraine crisis.
1: That's the US diplomat.
2: That's right. She's now the Under Secretary for Political Affairs in the uh, State Department. But it was when she was really in charge as Assistant Secretary for Europe. Uh, Ukraine and you know, talking to the ambassador in Ukraine at the time, and that was put on onto YouTube, and of course caused a lot of consternation in Ukraine and Europe and everything as well. They've done that too with hacking into the French elections ahead of Macron's first election, the German Bundestag, the German Parliament, and the Chancellor's emails. They've hacked into the OPCW, the organization of the prohibition of chemical weapons in The Hague, Swiss labs that you know during the Olympic doping scandal. We could just go on and on and on about all of the things that they've done. And so what we have to do there is to cover all of those bases as well and work with our European allies, because this is not just the Russians doing it to us, it's doing it to everybody. And that's when we can really push back too, because that gets Russians' attention. After the Skripal poisoning, the coordinated action to expel intelligence operatives, along with the UK government, that also got Russia's attention. And if it had been more extensive and more of the Europeans had really expelled a significant number because we knew that there were a lot of intel operatives running around. I mean, these hit squads that Bellingcat and other investigative groups have been tracking, the people who did the hit on Navalny, for example, and, you know, all the people who have been running around Europe taking people out. You know, we could have done a lot to roll back that operation and we still could. So those are also very significant because these guys are all involved in the same sets of dirty tricks from assassinations to cyber hacking.
1: I mean, it is an extraordinary way for a state to behave. I mean, you've written a book a while back calling Putin an operative in the Kremlin. And how much do you think the fact that this is a man whose formative years were as an intelligence officer affects Russian statecraft?
2: Well, I think that's really important because, as you say, it's an extraordinary way for a state to behave, but not one that's run by people who used to do these kind of black operations for a living. What's unusual, of course, is not just the nature of Putin himself, but that there are no other checks and balances in the system. In a way, the operatives run the country. They're not under anyone else's control apart from you know, the chief operative himself, Putin. So this is how they do business. So this makes everything very difficult. It gets to the heart of that question that you posed about, you know, how much can we really do here? We can't give up on it because it's too dangerous, frankly. We have to find a way of constraining all of these operations But we have to also accept that that's what they're going to do until there is a different person in the Kremlin who doesn't see these operations as the core of their statecraft. So it's a sub-statecraft, a deep statecraft. It's, you know, the guys who had all of the dirty tricks and the grab bag of all kinds of illicit tools. It's also financial flows, you know, dirty money, bribes, manipulation, honey traps, you name it. This has now become their statecraft, information war the psychological operations, it's not just one tool of many, it is the primary set of tools. And so the official uh, level of discussions, the dealings with the MFA, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Defence, those are almost the sideshow to what's going on here. So the other point is that we have to make it very difficult for them to operate. And I hate to say it, but what you're sitting in London makes it remarkably easy for the Russian state to do all of this because, you know, they're able to buy up London legal firms, sue people. I'm afraid, actually, this is going to sound kind of rather rude and blunt, but they've managed to turn London and all kinds of people who work into it as one of their instruments.
1: Sure. I mean, from the law firms to the PR firms, real estate.
2: Yeah, this court case or attempt now to bring Catherine Belton and her book Putin's people, which lays all of this out to cordon, to try to bankrupt her and newspapers. I mean, there's lawsuits against uh, lots of major newspapers, investigative journalists in the past. I mean, this is all part of their statecraft, but it's kind of out of the realm of our governments to be able to deal with this easily. So this has to be a public-private, all of society effort to be able to rein this in, because we haven't to give them all of these opportunities and openings to basically subvert us.
1: I mean, this is a slight sidetrack, but since you mentioned it, I mean, you were in the White House. You must have seen all this happening with London. Presumably you raised it with the British. What did they say?
2: Well, there was a lot of British efforts at the government level to counteract that. But, you know, they're also pushing against a very large effort to the contrary. I mean, we all know about all the scandals with various prominent individuals getting money from Russian interests. And, you know, there's been billions of pounds, Brought into London by Russian oligarchs working with the Kremlin in real estate, in law firms, solicitors, barristers, you name it, and massive investments across the board and contributions to various people's campaigns through all kinds of proxies. And it's happening in the United States as well. I mean, it's not just London, it's New York, Miami. Delaware, where lots of shell companies are operating. There's a new book coming out by an investigative journalist in the United States coming out in the fall, America's Kleptocracy, which documents all of this. Catherine Belton's book documented all of this as well. We've known about this for years. And the KGB used to do this back in the 1970s. Putin is just continuing with the same pattern going back to that period where KGB money was sloshing around all over Europe. It's just now the state is a kind of public-private enterprise. On their part and you know we're foolish to just let this continue.
1: Putin I think often you know when he's accused of this kind of stuff he and his people say well look you do the same to us you're trying to subvert our system you're trying to get me overthrown you've sponsored color revolutions and so on I don't know about you but my impression is that they sort of believe that but how do you assess the security of Putin's internal situation I mean he's just had this incredible challenge from Navalny. But Navalny is now in prison. They seem to be restricting domestic freedoms even more than before. How secure is Putin, do you think, now?
2: Well, given the monopoly on violence and coercion that the state has, I mean, he can ensure his security in, you know, ways that other leaders possibly can't because of just this massive coercive power that they have. I mean, his ability to put Navalny in jail, having failed to assassinate him the first time around to roll all of these organisations up. And we don't have a not um, to push back on this, unfortunately. Um, We just have to admit it that, you know, our pushback mechanisms are very limited. Sanctions are not going to change his mind because, as you're pointing out, this is all about himself. It's about his skin. It's about... Saving and preserving the system, the clique, the kleptocratic clique of people that he's built up around him, they're all heavily invested in it as well. And the Chinese and many other, you know, countries get away with all this kinds of activity too. And you know, they can see the limits of other people's abilities to counteract it. I mean, this is one of the reasons why we have to make it more difficult for them to stash their ill-gotten gains abroad why should they be able to avail themselves of swanning around Europe when, you know, they're doing this kind of thing at home and all of the subversion that they're carrying out in our territory as well? In terms of security, though, I think, you know, what Putin has to prove at home is that he's in charge still, that he can handle all of this. Because otherwise, you know, the risk is not so much from Navalny right now, although I think what Navalny's unbelievable courage and bravery and just his brazenness also in releasing the video showing the extent of Putin's kleptocracy with this massive palace down on the Black Sea in Gzendelik, it was pretty astounding, every little element of it. He's shown that there is a threshold which other people are willing to step over in their pursuit also of the presidency. Navalny's made no secret of the fact he would like to be a Russian president. They're not talking about the overthrowing of the entire system, but just getting this particular kleptocratic clique out and giving other people a chance. And I think that's a problem inside as well. As Putin gets older and he inevitably will, and he said he's going to stay till 2036, which, you know, somehow I have questions about because he'll be 84 by then. There'll be more people around saying, well, hang on, well, why couldn't it be me? And they'll be looking for any kind of sign of weakness. And so while he may be secure for now with the repressive potential that he has and the powers that he has, it doesn't mean that he will be forever. And this is one of these points about how much of a gift has Biden given him. Well, he has to keep on doing this. Putin has to keep proving that he's the statesmen abroad, and the power to be reckoned with at home. And there are other problems here. There's stagnation of the economy, there's the pandemic. I mean, we've all been seeing recently that Russia's going into another wave because they've only got about 10% of the population, maybe just a little bit more, fully vaccinated. And, you know, not much more people with one vaccination because they've been playing the anti-vaxxer card. They've been talking down all of the vaccines. Well, that means talking down their own, Right. Because if you can't trust AstraZeneca or Pfizer or Moderna, why should you trust Sputnik if you're a Russian? And nobody knows, you know, exactly which vaccine did Putin get. And Putin's still making people quarantine for two weeks before meeting with him. I heard all of this from the journalists who went to do the recent interview with him. And so he can't be very confident then of the strength of the vaccine if he's making everybody quarantine for two weeks before they can get in a room with him. So what's going on here? I do really think that they've got a lot of turbulent times ahead, just like the rest of us. So there's no guarantee of anything for Putin, just because you know he had a reasonably good summit with Biden.
1: Last question. You were an academic for many years. You had had brief stints in government, but you mainly studied Russia from outside government. And then you, you get into the White House, albeit the Trump White House. How much did your view of Russia change from dealing with it from the inside, so to speak.
2: My view of Russia didn't change. My view of the United States changed. And just our inability to mount collective action. I mean, I really saw the weakness of our system inside. And I'd seen it before. I mean, I did have a time, actually much more extensive time, in the National Intelligence Council from 2006, 2009. So I went from the Bush administration into the Obama administration, again, in a nonpartisan partisan position, very analytical, not dissimilar from what I'd been doing really in academia. But that was also an eye-opener into how the, the government works. And this time, it was more than an eye-opener, it was sort of a hair-raiser, you know, sort of singeing experience, like being a bit too close to a blast furnace. And it illustrated that the Russians were not so much the problem, but our own inability, look, I could say that about the UK as well, or any other country, our own inability to get our act together was the major problem. And so domestic weakness on our part, is what the Russians were feeding off. So the Russians could not have possibly had any kind of impact on the 2016 election had the United States not been so polarised. And what I was not so much astounded by, but deeply troubled by and disappointed by, was our inability to get past partisan infighting and political games. The privatisation of foreign policy was what I observed, And that made it very difficult to actually mount any kind of defence to what the Russians had done in 2016 and were continuing to do. And I would say it's exactly the same in the UK and it's exactly the same in other countries as well, where their domestic problems become a national security risk. You 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 lose your competitive edge and you lose your ability to push back.
1: That was Fiona Hill in Washington, D.C., ending this edition of the Rachman Review. Thanks for listening. And please join us again next week for more discussion of international politics.
0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the US, Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.